Today we come to the third sermon in this series in Revelation on the letters to the seven churches in Asia, now part of modern-day Turkey. We've already looked at the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna, and now we come to the church in Pergamum. We've already seen that the pattern of the letters is that Jesus reminds the churches what he knows about them, which of course is everything, and then he commends aspects of their lives and witness and encourages them, but only in the letter to Smyrna and Philadelphia can he leave it at that. The remaining five churches, including Pergamum, have issues which must be addressed if the gospel is to spread and flourish and more and more people are to come to know Jesus as their Lord and God. Pergamum was the administrative capital of the Roman province of Asia, and the governor was based there. But more than that, it was preeminent in terms of the cult of emperor worship, eventually having no fewer than three temples dedicated to this practice. At the time of John's writing, the emperor Domitian liked to be addressed as Lord and God. We can think of the disciple Thomas, who when he eventually stopped doubting and recognized the risen Christ, declares, my Lord and God. No disciple of Christ should describe anyone else as Lord or God. We read that the Pergamum church has been faithful in this respect. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We don't know anything about Antipas other than he was prepared to die rather than renounce Jesus in favor of the emperor or any of the plethora of gods such as the Greek god Zeus or the healing god Asclepius, both of whom had temples dedicated to them, which you could find in the Pergamum religious marketplace. And again, we can think of Paul when he visited Athens, and we read in Acts 17, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. Note that Paul didn't just feel a bit upset or a wee bit put out and think, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I'll best keep my head down and keep under the radar. He was greatly distressed, so he did something about it and actively engaged with the locals by preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Of course, the church in Pergamum is a settled community, while Paul is itinerant and regularly moving on. And so we need to think how best to witness to Jesus in our particular context. Jesus says, Pergamum, where you live, 
is also where Satan lives. These are strong words. And John believes that satanic influence, not least through the apparatus of the Roman state, has led to significant persecution and attacks on the church. Remember, too, that Roman governors had the power of summary execution, the ius gladii, the right to use the sword. And this may be the reason why Jesus is described as him who has the sharp double-edged sword. In other words, ultimately, the real world power over life and death lies with Jesus rather than any governor or government. So far, so good. The Pergamum church has been faithful to Jesus and has not denied him when the surrounding cultural pressures to conform to these values which do not honor Jesus is considerable. However, it may be that the martyrdom of Antipas and the threat of further persecution has led to the resolve of some of their number weakening and being more willing to go with the flow and fit in better with the surrounding culture. The title of today's sermon is Loyal Yet Compromised. They are loyal to Jesus in that they have not denied him. However, it appears that they are struggling to live a distinct Jesus-like life. So Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know precisely what the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans was, but the reference to Balaam refers to an incident in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24, which you might want to read at your leisure later. Basically, King Balak of Moab was concerned that the Israelites, whom God had rescued from slavery in Egypt, were flourishing and being blessed to such an extent by God that their sheer numbers and power posed a threat to his Moabite people and territory. He hires the prophet Balaam to curse Israel in the hope that their fortunes would be reversed and Balak would be able to drive them out of Moab. Balaam found he couldn't curse them. So instead, he advises Balak to adopt another tactic because he's still keen to pick up his fee, which won't be forthcoming until the job is done. Where direct spiritual attack, the curse, had failed, more subtle temptation might work. And, as is often the case, the best temptation would be sexual. Tom Wright notes, Moabite women were sent to entice the Israelite men who presumably already had Israelite wives. Through this means, they were drawn into idolatry, worshipping other gods rather than Yahweh. Job done. In Numbers 
25, we read, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Idolatry is anything or anyone that you put before Jesus. And it seems that idolatry was a problem in Pergamum. Marcus Maxwell writes, For Christians avoiding contact with paganism could be tantamount to social ostracization. Social, political, and business life centered on the worship of pagan gods. Meals were eaten in their temples. Trade guilds had patron deities. And overall was the cult of the emperor a binding force for political conformity. Christians could lose social prestige, friendship, and wealth. Why not then make an outward show of conformity? Christ was the one true Lord. There was only one true God. So what harm was there in making a show for form's sake? Similarly, Tom Wright asks, how should a Christian live in a city like Pergamum? What could one do and what should one not do? We can only guess at the many anxious discussions and varied teachings that might have attempted to address these questions. Should one take part in the normal civic life, which included festivals of the gods, not least Rome and the emperor? Was there a way in which one might do enough to get by while drawing back from full involvement? William Barclay comments on this kind of dilemma for the Christians in Pergamum and beyond. The principle of the Christian life is not escape, but conquest. We may feel it would be very much easier to be a Christian in some other place, in some other circumstances. But the duty of Christians is to witness for Christ where life has set them. We once heard of a girl who was converted in an evangelistic campaign. She was a reporter on a secular newspaper, and her first step after conversion was to get a, a new job on a small Christian newspaper where she was constantly in the company of committed Christians. It was strange that the first thing her conversion did was to make her run away. The more difficult it is to be a Christian in any set of circumstances, the greater the obligation to remain within those circumstances. If in the early days Christians had run away every time they were confronted with a difficult engagement, there would have been no chance of a world for Christ. We can think of the episode with the demon-possessed man called Legion, who lived in tombs alongside the dead. He was at times literally in chains, 
but he managed to break free of them every so often. Jesus healed him, and the, local witness, the locals witnessed the huge change in him. He is healed, and they now see him sitting at Jesus' feet. That's the position a student would adopt as a rabbi taught him. Dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. They urged Jesus to leave because they feared what he was capable of, not least because their herd of pigs had earlier been sent to their deaths in the lake. Perhaps Legion realizes that he might be in for a hard time with the locals if he doesn't leave the area along with Jesus. And so he begs Jesus to let him come with him. But that's not Jesus' plan for him. And Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. The writer John White comments on Christians who he says, run away to the mission field. What he means by that are Christians who try to convince themselves and everyone else that God is calling them to evangelize for him perhaps in foreign climes, or some kind of outreach that might be more exciting or attractive or easier or even more lucrative than their current circumstances, occupation, etc. This also means that they can throw off the responsibilities or difficulties in the place where God has currently placed them. Each of us must daily question who it is we're serving and why. What's our motivation? And we need to be honest with ourselves and admit when we are being more self-serving than Jesus-serving. Over the past couple of weeks, The Scripture Union Encounter with God Daily Notes have been covering parts of Luke's Gospel. In Luke 14, 25 to 27, we read, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Daniel McGuinness comments, this saying of Jesus isn't exactly light or easy. It is meant to curb the enthusiasm of the crowds and get people thinking about why they are really following him. He even shocks them by implying that they will need to commit to him more than to their own family, and he compares discipleship 
to carrying an instrument of public and shameful execution. Often, especially in the West, Christian faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. We know so much about Christ, but when push comes to shove, our commitment to following Him sacrificially lacks real substance and vigor. Christian life is not trouble-free. It is full of great joy, but also of painful loss and cost. Discipleship is an invitation to death. And he asks, is your faith in Jesus superficial? Jesus' challenge is either to turn back or go deeper. To follow Christ means total surrender to him, even to the point of death. Be sure you've counted the cost of discipleship thoroughly so that your faith won't waver when it becomes painful. Living distinctive lives for Jesus is what every Christian is called to. However, as was mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we can be distinctive for the wrong reasons, which frankly have nothing to do with being in Christ. Rebecca Manley Pipper, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, which looks at how we can be distinctive in our daily lives, relates an episode when she was at university in the USA, and she, had white, and she invited one of her friends, who wasn't a Christian, to meet some of her Christian friends. If she was hoping for a relaxed, natural, non-threatening introduction to the church for her friend, then her hopes were dashed when the opening gambit of one guy to her friend was to ask her, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? The extreme of coming across as odd or tuned to the moon isn't the category that most of us fall into, I hope. John White points out that for most of us, the problem isn't that we're too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use, but rather we are too earthly-minded to be of much heavenly use. In so many ways, then, we need to think about how to be distinctive for Jesus in our particular context and circumstances in a way that honors Jesus and puts him first. We now have the joys of an Advent general election. And a considerable number of MPs have announced that they will not be seeking re-election. The tragic thing is that the amount of vitriol, hatred, death threats, etc., that MPs from all parties have reported have contributed to many of those folks deciding not to stand again. For some of you, social media like Facebook and Twitter, etc., is a closed world. But if you do use social media, think carefully about what you post and share. Because although social media can be used wisely and positively for good, it can also be used very, very unwisely and sadly 
there are times when Christians fall into the trap of posting material which falls far, far short of kingdom values and dishonors Jesus. And that is disobedience to Jesus. Don't do it. Think about what you're posting. Think about what you're saying. Think about who your Lord is. Returning to Pergamum, Jesus calls in the church to turn away from, to repent of any behavior which dishonors Jesus and so blunts the gospel message. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them. That's the Christians who are dishonoring God by their behavior. With the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. God will not allow such sin to continue indefinitely. The churches, all churches, are urged to be open to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in the here and now. The references to hidden manna and white stones and new names is by common consent obscure and has given rise to a huge range of different possible interpretations. However, what is clear is that those who are in Christ, those who are faithful disciples, are promised an intimate, eternal relationship with Jesus where all sin is ultimately conquered and completely destroyed forever. In the message paraphrase of these verses, we read, Enough! Don't give in to them. I'll be with you soon. I'm fed up and about to cut them to pieces with my sword-sharp words. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the Spirit blowing through the churches. Christ conquerors are safe from devil death. For all that revelation is a challenging read, particularly when aspects of the background historical references are necessarily unfamiliar to us in 2019, Yet it contains great eternal truths and promises. When journeying with Jesus, it is good to be regularly reminded that one day Eden will be completely restored and indeed is already being restored. In Revelation 21, 3 to 4, we read, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Amen.